Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. It is a true blessing to be able to connect with the top minds and strength each and every week and share stories, insights, and experiences on becoming stronger in every area of our lives. And now I want to do more for you. I want to invite you to join the exclusive private Facebook group of The Strength Connection. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations, as well as training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in life. This group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength in their lives, and it's the perfect space to explore ideas and share your journey. You'll also get exclusive access to the Strength Connection Mastery Seminars. It's a deep dive into physical, mental, and spiritual training that you can begin using immediately. Just go to the Facebook groups, type in the Strength Connection, and you'll be accepted immediately. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you on the inside. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Doc Hartle, it's great to see you. And happy birthday, my friend. Well, thank you, sir. I turned 29 today. I look pretty good for 29. That's pretty good for 29. Yeah, a little salt in the in the beard there for 29. Hey, come on. I just painted that just five minutes ago. <laughs> no, seriously. It's it's great to see you. Um, I think this is our third time actually chatting on a podcast. First one on this one since I started this. Um, but I yes. learned so much from you over the years, so it's always great to have you on. I really appreciate it. Well, it's always great to talk to you. Yeah. So last time you were just telling me last time um, you were going for your PhD. Is that correct? Yes. I decided uh, May of last year to go for my PhD in exercise science. Okay. Uh, so I just finished my first year uh, before July 4th weekend. So I'm starting my second year in the program. It's about a four year program. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's 100 percent online. It's through uh, Concordia University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, they actually had an online program uh, before the pandemic. So 2017, I think they started it. So mm -hmm. when the pandemic hit, it was kind of like just made it stronger and made it better. So what inspired you to go back and want to get your PhD in this? <laughs> um, I was bored. Um, um, you know, I became a doctor 29 years ago. I yeah. enjoyed doing that. I can plan on still doing that even after getting my PhD. Um, I was just... You know, as 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 I'm getting up there in years, I'm 55, actually, not 29. I know I had you fooled, um, but uh, that's great. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, one of the things you learn is that not only does the physical structure tend to de disintegrate or degenerate, um, but so does the brain. Hmm. And so I decided to obviously I do the kettlebells and barbell and some body weight stuff to maintain the physical structure, uh, which also helps the brain aspect, too. Right. Um, but also I wanted to learn new things. Um, and so some of the things actually I've learned in the last year have actually helped me become a better uh, chiropractic doctor as well, too, because it's helped me with my patients. But uh, I just finished my first year, starting my second year now in uh, this, this class I'm in right now. And uh, one beautiful thing about it, I just came back from vacation, is I was able to do my homework while I'm there. So it's 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 weird because I graduated with my first doctorate in 93. This is probably before you were born. Um, I was nine. I was still, I was around for a little bit. Okay, all right, all right. You weren't wearing diapers, hopefully, at that point. Not yet, no, yeah. But, uh, you know, back then, everything was in classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I think the the internet started getting going sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, and stuff like that. But there's some some aspect where some people, some people, online stuff was going on, but it was really kind of cranky and not very good. Um, now you fast forward to almost 30 years later, and there's so many degrees now, bachelors, masters, associates, doctorate you can get online. So I Googled about, I think it was April or uh, February last year, online exercise science classes, because Ball State University is about an hour and a half south of me here. Um, and I thought, well, I could go to Ball State University. They have a great exercise science program. 
but I called them and they said they wanted me down there two or three days a week. Well, that was during the pandemic. So I know they probably didn't want me down there actually. Um, and so they didn't have a very good program for online stuff. So I looked at it and there's about 10 programs in the United States uh, a year ago and Concordia University of Chicago had great reviews or uh, NCAA division three, huge into sports. And so I got into their program and so I'm very blessed to do that. Wow. It is. It's so interesting how nowadays we're, we're, we just think online education and stuff has just been around forever. But like, I remember growing up and I started seeing like the old University of Phoenix online college academies, oh. which was one of the first like national online colleges. And we just thought this was the weirdest thing ever. What are you talking about? You go to school in a classroom and now it's yeah, like teacher in front of you. Yeah. It's like, what do you, yeah. Like you need that physical spot, but now it's like, I I've used um, a program. It's, I think it's called Udemy, which yes. has, yeah, has just all different courses and programs that you can go on. And it's funny because we hear so much about the how much social media there's a negative component to it and stuff it's like the online stuff that we have that we just take for granted now is amazing that you can get a full education online go on vacation and still get everything that you need to done right we're uh we're in hawaii for a week and we're in maui and so i'm sitting there and the only thing i had to do is i had to figure out okay so i had to turn it in by a deadline on chicago time so i had to do how many hours those so five hours so instead of being due at midnight i did have it in by 7 p.m Hawaii time to get it there on time. So, I mean, it, it just hit the Wi-Fi, boom, gone. I mean, it was just fantastic to be able to do that. So yeah. uh, even us talking right now, having a, a video chat and, and doing this online is amazing. Whereas before, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to do this because you had to have a radio station. You had to have a, a signal by the FCC and all this other stuff. Now we can do this. Now it's just barriers to entries. If you have to just sign up for a right. break and just get it rolling. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> how, was, how was Hawaii? Was that the first time you ever went there? No, it's my 10th or 11th time going oh, there. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I've used to live in Oahu. My dad was stationed at Pearl Harbor during Mrs. Vietnam. That was, that was a war many years ago. I'm not sure if you've heard of that before. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so we, we used to live in Oahu for three years. So I was moved there when I was three and left when uh, I was about six and a half. Um, so I remember that very much. I've uh, been back quite a few times. I've never been to Maui. been to uh, Kauai, Oahu, uh, the Big Island, and <laughs> my first time in Maui. Wow. What'd you think of Maui? Was it everything that you thought? It was, it was yeah, it was, it was more, it kind of just laid back. Oahu, you know, if, if you want to get, go to crazy stuff, you know, it's downtown Waikiki is just nuts. Right. I mean, basically about a million people live in a, in a five foot square area. I mean, that's just, you know, a lot of stuff there. Um, Big Island's chill. Well, Maui's chill. Whole quiet, pretty much all the islands are chill except for Oahu, at least Waikiki area. Um, mm -hmm. Maui's, yeah, it was, it was, it was cool. We went to the top of uh, Haleakala. Um, they're, Former active volcano, about 10,000 feet. We watched the sunset. That was amazing. Um, you just see the sun go down over the horizon and the glow. And I was just got a lot of photos. And uh, one of my latest uh, things I want to do is I've been to every state in the United States. So now I'm going to every national park. So I checked that one off the off the list. Haleakala is a national park. So did that one. So, oh, yeah. wow. oh, that's a beautiful trip there. So I've heard because Oahu, that's where like most of the big surfing is, right? Over in... The North Shore of Oahu is, but then also Maui also has the they call Jaws. So when they they can have sixty foot right. swells, and they get some huge guys doing pipelines and all that stuff with all the surfing. So surfing is pretty huge in Maui and Oahu. But the Kauai doesn't really have it very big, and the Big Island doesn't have it very big either. But Maui and Oahu do. Oh, that's great! It's one place I have not been able to visit yet, because and everybody 
that has gone there said it takes a while to get there, but it is worth every second to go down there. So that's awesome. Oh, that got, got, got well, I mean, we're both on Eastern time and there's six yeah. hours behind us. So, you know, they say research that traveling East is always harder than traveling West. So when I've gone to Europe many times, uh, it's always been, you know, harder there for the first day or two, but then you get used to it. coming back home is not so bad. So in this case, you go the opposite. So you get there, we got there at midnight, Fort Wayne time was six o'clock their time. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> fall asleep, but I need to eat some food. I need to fill up the car with gas, all that stuff. So yeah, that's great. So with the with the PhD program, I mean, you said you're learning a lot here, but I mean, but you've been a doctor for almost three decades now. From right. there, and like just getting intro. What were some of the things? Like, was there anything specific that you're like, wow, I never knew that before, even though it was kind of like first year kind of intro stuff. Or? There's a lot of stuff that is rehashing what I learned in school, but it's actually putting a different, uh, not different spin on it. It's, it's, it's going deeper into it. Um, so we had a uh, neuromuscular adaptation course last year. And so I'm really uh, huge into uh, neurological stuff and, and, and uh, neuromuscular stuff. So that class kind of was, it was a hard class. Um, the teacher wanted a lot of, uh, she did a lot of, had us do a lot of writing, which, you know, of course, invokes the old cognitive aspect in the brain to kind of put into words and, and do it properly. So that was actually a class. Well, actually, I wrote an article for Strong First based on that class, still going through some editing with it. Uh, I hope it'll be published here in the next month or two uh, through Strong First. But I put I did a lot of citations with that. Um, we also had cardiovascular adaptations with neuro with uh, as far as physical exercise physiology. So that was actually pretty interesting. Again, a lot of stuff is kind of like rehashing, but it's actually putting another layer two on top of that. Mm -hmm. With with um, the neuromuscular adaptation, can you dive a little bit deeper into into that? Is it like just the the cognitive? just strength that you build up from going into exercise? Is that kind of the... Well, for example, the article that I'm writing has both peripheral and central nervous system uh, adaptation. So when you think about central nervous system, you think about the brain, the spinal cord. Right. Peripheral, you're talking about when the nerves leave the spine, that's where you get the peripheral aspect there. So for example, uh, they did a study and they actually... Um, they, they took a um, person and they exhausted them with their peripheral aspect, but they actually kept doing some type of uh, uh, involuntary contractions and what they did is they actually got the central nervous system to um, get exhausted, but they kept the peripheral actually uh, rested. So then the rested part was able to do another 80 seconds afterwards. It's good. I'm kind of trying to put in the layman's yeah. terms what they said, but yeah. basically it was pretty interesting because they actually could actually do that and get people uh, recovered. Kind of like um, goes along the same lines of Pavel's strong endurance aspect. Okay. You know, kind of the aspect where you have the A plus A aspect with that, mm -hmm. um, or basically you're, you're resting and you do a certain amount of rest time, but you're actually recovering. So a whole bunch of things. So the article is actually called Train Hard, Recover Better. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. it. So the central nervous system was getting exhausted while it was kind of the peripheral system was resting. Right. Hmm. Wow. And it's interesting too, because they even have like, for example, there's a thing called a crossover effect where, for example, let's say you break your right leg. Um, but what we recommend is that as you are recovering from that broken leg and you have to get casted, that you're still using, doing stuff with your left leg. Now your left leg, your right leg will decrease in physical size because it's not being used. You know, you'll the use it or lose it, uh, uh, method there. Um, but you can actually decrease how much it loses by using your left leg. Cause when your left leg exercises, it sends signals up through to your spinal cord. It then has what we call a spillover effect which then tends to activate the neuronal aspects for the right leg that's broken. 
Right. And get the quadricep muscle. Say you are exercising your quadricep muscle on your left side. You're actually exercising on your right side, but mm -hmm. you're not actually physically moving the right side. Yeah, it's. I remember uh, a while ago, a friend I had broke his arm and was doing single arm bench presses uh, on one side. And I mean, we know unilateral exercise is great just for the imbalance type work and right. stuff, but for a recovery aspect of his other side, like he was able to bounce back a lot faster from it. He was younger too. I mean, he bounced back relatively quickly, but right. he attributed to still doing the single leg, um, you know, dumbbell presses on one side, being able to continuously right uh, you know get into recovery on the other side so much faster because a lot of people take the cast off and they go where'd my muscle go yeah you actually do some exercise a lot of people think the cast is where you're just going to sit on your butt for six weeks you know don't do that you could get out get some kind of exercise whether it be in the pool whether it be uh aerobic stuff uh resistance training anything mm -hmm. else like that gets the muscle tissue and actually spills over to the other side as well too hmm. okay are they going so, into like specific exercises that work better for like the central nervous system versus peripheral? Is it right no, now? Kind of no, they, they actually more, well, they also get dived in always all the way down to the synapses and the neurons and, and all that kind of dived into pretty strong. So, but a lot of the stuff again was just rehashing what I learned many years ago. So definitely becoming a doctor of chiropractic helped me with the PhD program. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, it's always, it's, you can always learn new stuff by just kind of rehashing and stuff. And you think of it in different ways after your experience, you know, 25, 30 years down the road from what well, you like I said earlier, that use it or lose it principle that, you know, if you use it, you're going to keep having, it. if you lose it. So if all of a sudden you become bedridden, your muscle size is going to go down, your aerobic capacity goes down, you know, everything goes, starts to go down, even your brain, if you're not using your brain. Mm -hmm. um, so keep using your brain. So for example, um, a person who's in prison, for example, someone who gets books and books and books and reads, they maintain their mental capacity. So when they get out, they're actually still a, a viable person of, of, our, of our society. <laughs> Whereas if someone who doesn't do that, they come out, they're actually usually a lesser person because they haven't been using their brain. Right, right. So, Have you seen that at all with athletics of kind of challenging the cognitive area, almost like problem solving during exercises and seeing that that's actually a benefit of getting into game time situations. Oh yeah. I've seen that before. Um, you got to be careful of that though, because if you have a sport that is obviously very skill dependent, so let's say, uh, let's say soccer or mm -hmm. football, American football, that if you have a certain position you're playing and you're supposed to do this and that, you got to know those, those skills very strongly. Right. But you also, if you, but again, that's what I was saying earlier. That's one reason why I went back to school to enhance the brain aspect. But if you do something for so long, it becomes second nature. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's like why, why at the SFG level one, we teach skip six skills. You know, we say we're an inch wide and a mile deep as far as what we teach. We don't teach 45 kettlebell exercises in two days. You know, we mm -hmm. teach six in three days. Um, but from those six, you can derive many different, uh, uh, different exercises from those six. Right. Uh, same thing too. If you, but if you keep doing it, keep doing it. It's one of those things. That's why police officers, they train so much in peacetime or military guys, because when it comes to wartime, they don't have to think they just do. Right. You know? And so when you just do but then you also have to, like you said, use cognitive aspects to keep your mind sharp. Because if you, sometimes when you do something so much, you start to lose the, say the size start to become very gray which means you start to lose the ability to think and do at the same time. Right. Yeah. That's, That's why people say that, for example, when you drive home from work, take a different route every so often, 
Right. Yeah. Stay out of that automatic zone, right? Because an automatic zone can get you in trouble sometimes. Say you're on the phone talking to your girlfriend or your wife or whatever, and you're just driving home and all of a sudden you just happen to just, you hit a car in front because you're not paying attention. They slammed on their brakes. You know, so take a different route every so often, see different things because it actually activates as far as a cognitive aspect. Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've talked to a couple different people, uh, my friend Diane Webb and Dr. Tiffany Jones, who are mindset coaches. And uh, mm-hmm. Tiffany was talking about working with gymnastics athletes and how they're so set on routine, like on the balance beam. It's like everything is from how you step up to it to stepping on, you know, exactly where you're going. And right. once they got the routine down, then she started throwing Metallica on or Slipknot, like just different type of music that maybe they're not aware of. Start right. going just to break that out because you never know what's going to happen when that comes on. Well, even if you took an athlete like that, you threw a softball at them, you know, mm-hmm. or some kind of softball or where you actually can force them. Now they're doing a balance. Also, they have to look out and have to catch it. Yeah. You know, we'll do that football players too. Sometimes we'll do that when they run through a drill, like say an agility drill or something where they're using their body. And also we'll just throw something at and they have to react. Mm-hmm. That's what happens during a game. That's what happens during gymnastics. When all of a sudden something, your foot's maybe a half a millimeter off and then you slip a little bit, you got to be able to catch yourself quickly and be able to continue on with your, your routine. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I had a, um, a coach I worked with when we worked with youth hockey players and mm. he was doing some kind of Eric's pad single leg work, but also wall stick handling. And then would start asking them like math problems in there. And I was talking about them like, why are you doing that? It's like, they should be able to do it and still be able to solve everything in their head at the same time. And I was like, okay, like it seemed a little like woo woo, a little wiggy on it in there. But then I was like, no, I think there might be something to this, especially with something like maybe a, um, a game like hockey or so, which is so, you know, back and forth, like all of a sudden right. offense versus defense, you need to react very quickly with that. So that carryover of the cognitive work to the physical aspect, I think is so important, especially if you're dealing with athletics. Well, the thing is too, the mind is so tied in with the body. That's why they say that, you know, if you want to enhance your brain, especially if you say someone who's retired, someone who's in their sixties or seventies, you know, go outside and walk. Walking is one of the most simplest exercises that we can all do. Um, you know, all you need is a pair of shoes. Or if you want to walk barefoot, go ahead and walk barefoot if you want. Um, but again, like you said earlier, you give, give these math tests to these kids. Now, if you started those math tests when they were learning how to do the drill, you would mm-hmm. have them all messed up because they wouldn't right. be able to do it because they don't have the the uh, motor engram set in their bodies on how to do the physical drill. So you, being a good coach is knowing when, okay, they've done this enough. Now I'm going to throw them some math things to, to, to make this exercise more difficult because they have to do and think about two different things at the same time. Yeah, it's almost, I've talked a lot with people on the podcast and I've talked with Brett quite a bit about the intuitive side of training with it, where it's almost kind of on a similar path where you need to have that structure and that rigidity to know what you're doing, but then eventually you have to find that creative side of it to keep progressing forward. And this seems like it's another way to to challenge that a little bit, keep doing the same routine, but challenge it a little bit different cognitively. Very much so, very much so. So when you do that, so for example, let's say you're um, doing kettlebell depth. You teach someone how to do the kettlebell depth. They are 110% focused on doing that. Now you take six months fast forward and you start asking them skills. They got that down so pat that they can do it and do the skills. And that's what Brett says about the intuitive aspect that when you do that, you're basically thinking about, okay, I can, I can actually tweak this a little bit and still do it properly. Whereas before you had to have every box checked off. Does that make sense? 
It does. Yeah. It's um, because it's hard. I've what I've the question I've always had on that is like, when do you know as a coach with somebody when they have it down and start throwing these other things in there? You know, I, I would say once they've probably done maybe a thousand reps. Yeah. And I'm just throwing that number out there now in swings. It's easy to do a thousand reps. Hell, you could do that in two or three days. Right. Um, but what I would do is throw, give me two plus two, just throw a very simple mathematical you know, problem that they learned in kindergarten or first grade. And if they have a problem doing it, then you back off. Hmm. If they don't, then say, give me the integral of X squared Z DX. I'm just joking about that. <laughs> we'll I, was calculus the there. Shit down. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. I'm out of here. Yeah. yeah. But, no, yeah. but you go ahead you can slowly start layering it on there. Yeah. But you got to give them some time to be able to do it. So I used to coach track and field and I used to have the, have the students uh, do agility ladders, two of the four practices. And someone said, why are you having them do an agility ladder when all they're doing is running down a one meter wide line? And I said, because it teaches them to be able to be on their, their midfoot and their forefoot. Because mm -hmm. a lot of these kids when, in junior high run on their heels. Right. It's okay to walk on your heels. Obviously, we do that all the time. But when you run on your heels, you can have a lot of physical problems going all the way up to your lower back and even up to your skull as well, too. So when you learn to, need to learn to do that. Um, but when I had these kids start, say, in fourth or fifth grade, they had, looked like they had two left feet. So I told those kids to always be at the end of the line, and I want them to walk through the agility ladder. You had an eighth grader who just did it you know, backwards with his eyes closed and he was smiling, but he's had so many reps of doing it. So now this, this new fourth or fifth grader doesn't, he doesn't have the motor engram set in the skills yet. So right. once he starts getting those skills in, then you can start doing uh, the aspect with that. It's interesting. I've seen that and I've talked a lot about that on the strength side of things of building that up, but it seems even on speed and agility, it's all the same practice in there. It's just started that slow and then building up. And I like that you mentioned that because especially a lot of times when we're looking at athletic training, so much is geared to like mimic the patterns of what they're doing in their sport. But if right. you only work on those patterns and you don't try and just change anything else, then you're not building athletes. You're building a specific person for that sport. If they ever do anything else, that's when injuries are going to pop up. Right. We used to, used to say like uh, develop in between strength. I think mm. uh, Marty Gallagher said it, Pavel said that or something about Marty said that, but so when I was playing semi-pro football, I played nose tackle, defensive tackle. And with doing that, you know, I can't train for every uh, situation that's going to happen during the game. Mm -hmm. So I basically train in between strengths. So I train this strength and I train this strength. And then I'm actually, if something requires me to be somewhere in the middle between those two, I have the requisite strength to be able to do it because I've done this strength over here and this strength over here. Hmm. That when makes sense. Were, yeah. When you were staying, when you were, um, playing football and I know you played all the way up till just a few years ago from there yeah. did you keep a specific kind of strength program like on you know to just make sure that you were just maintaining a certain level of strength oh yeah so I did uh, barbell and kettlebell stuff together um usually so our games were Saturday nights so I would have Sunday as kind of a, a chill day I was a little bit sore but nothing major um, Monday I started doing mobility stuff um Tuesday I did some more heavy training uh, Wednesday did some stretching Thursday did some more moderate training some mediums type training and then Saturday the game I just hit repeat every week okay so I trained twice during the week and of course we had football practices and everything with that too so mm -hmm. okay did you adjust your training at all usually during that times depending on how you felt during it did you just kind of do that more oh yeah so you know being that you know <laughs> the sport of powers which I did it for 20 years before I started playing football 
Uh, I never, ever had a barbell jump out of the rack and attack me. Okay. Let that sink in for a second. So I never had to <laughs> jump off the hooks and whack me in the head. Whereas gotcha. playing defensive tackle, I'd either be single teamed or double teamed. And if I was mm -hmm. double teamed, gotcha. there's okay. 600 pounds coming at me. Um, and their goal was to stop me from going into the backfield and, and doing that. So um, in that regard, so what I would do with the training is I would actually go ahead and, and train for that aspect with the aspect of being double teamed. So that's why I worked on the bench press. Now, if I had a situation where, say, I just tweaked my shoulder at the previous game, mm -hmm. um, then I would spend more time doing the arm bar, more time doing thoracic right. mobility, more time doing the bent arm bar, um, working on as far as the rotation of the thoracic spine. Um, I would work at the get-ups. Get-ups were a, a godsend when I was playing football. Really? Um, because the get-ups would actually help re- um, yeah, nothing like I'm not popping my shoulders in, but it would, it would help reset my rotator cuff and help reset everything else mm -hmm. uh, around the rotator cuff with that. So when I did that, it would, my shoulders would still be sore, but I'd come back to the next week's game and I'd be almost back to, back to normal. Right. You know, the getup is, it's such an interesting exercise for me because for a long time, it was like, I'm like, this is the, the end all. Everybody that does kettlebell trainings needs to do getups, but then it's like up to what extent I think it's almost seems like it's, the best exercise for kind of like what you said, almost like a movement assessment of how you're feeling throughout the day, where it's like, for a while, we got so big into heavy get-ups of like, you need to keep progressing it up, get up to a 40K or a 48K. Right. But really using that exercise more as almost like a movement prep-based exercise, if you're an athlete, that seems like it's really the best approach for using something like the get-up. Well, I have a few kettlebell clients that work with me, and so they do some light get-ups as far as a warm-up mm. uh, because it does make you go through all the different normal planes of motion. Um, so when you do the get-up, it actually gets them warmed up. Um, I'll do that usually, especially people who would do a lot of uh, is a shoulder press day. You know, lots of shoulder pressing or bent arm, or bent arm, bent arm uh, press or whatever. So with, with that kind of stuff, I'd have them do the get-ups and the get-ups would actually help warm them up. Now, if they're doing heavy get-ups, we also do start with light get-ups and move forward from right. there. I always did get-ups after I did my bench press. So I did bench press first and then I would do, do some, maybe some tricep work. And then I did some as far as, I'm not much of an isolation guy, but triceps is an area where if I worked it hard, it actually helped my bench press very strongly. Got that from Louis Simmons. Hmm. Um, and then going to get up right after that. You're the second person in like two weeks that told me about more tricep work for, for the bench press in there. Cause I'm, I'm trying to finish this bench press task from this SFL. It is like, it's a nemesis going on right now. So I've been reading all of your work again of like the bar path right. and stuff of getting in. And it's somebody else said like, just getting a little bit more of that tricep, you know, work, especially on that negative seems right. like it benefits so much. So one of my favorite exercises when I was powerlifting uh, was I would do heavy dumbbell tricep extensions. Mm. So I'd have a dumbbell in each hand, sit on a bench, I'd roll back, and I basically I would actually go back to the point where I would get the bells back here by my head and then get up. Now, the key thing with that is keeping the arms parallel. A lot of people, when they start to do it, they start to let a lot of the elbows yeah. come out like that. Um, and that really, really, really got my elbows very, my triceps very strong. Mm -hmm. um, also, I did um, heavy board presses. I did heavy floor presses. Now the floor presses I did are different than the one that Pablo does with the bridge floor press. Right. This is where my butt's on the floor and my knees are bent. Um, and, and so I would not raise my hips and I'd probably go up to say 450 or whatever on the floor press. 
you know, and basically I have someone basically almost like delves it off the rack for me and get in position. And of course, obviously you're stopping your elbows touch the floor. Those are movements that not only help the triceps, but also help the top end of my bench press, which is where I usually, I never got stuck with a bar on my chest. My, my, was okay. my lockout. So that's why I focus more on my triceps. One of the very few isolation exercises I ever did when I was powerlifting. Yeah. I was going to ask, cause of, is that mostly where you find a lot of people's sticking point on that? Is it the mid spot or is it more most people kind of stuck on the chest? Or do you think it's pretty much? I've, I've been an international referee with the IPF for a number of years. And one of the, I've seen it get people get stuck in their chest. And all of a sudden they get it, say, three inches off their chest, they lock it out. Yeah. Whereas I get anything off my chest, it's just the lockout part that I'd have a problem with. Mm -hmm. So yeah. everyone's different. It's like in the Delf, in the sumo Delf, most people have issues coming off the floor. That's why I tell them during the SFL, just stick with it, stick with it, stick with it, and eventually it'll come off mm -hmm. because your feet are so spread apart with that. But again, I've also seen people who have no problem getting off in sumo and get stuck near the top. Yeah. So each, it's like, uh, like Stu McGill says, it depends. It does, each, yeah. each person's built differently. And even when you think someone, someone based on their body type, their bone structure, you can say they're going to be this kind of lifter. They're like completely opposite that. Yeah. So. That was the interesting thing of going to SFL. Um, it was one of the most incredible experiences on a certification that I've ever been to. Um, I'm, shout out again to Fabio and Annalisa that did an unbelievable job sure. of coaching. But that was one of the interesting things of everybody's body type was very different depending it. So we had like a couple people who were very long torso, short legs, which was very much like their front squat was like a dive. It was like a six o'clock where then you have like the inverted, where it's much more of like getting back into that eight or nine. And right. it's almost like, I, I always knew like with kettlebells, they were so like, it really fit the architecture of your body, like how, you know, how you were naturally built. But like, that was the first time I saw that the barbells the same way, you kind of have to figure out what your architecture and your body is like to maximize the effort that you can give. Well, yeah, and this is, so that's why we put together the principles in the SFL. So we have certain standards at the front of each lift, a good morning, the, the uh, military press, back squat. Um, we have a certain standards with that. So for example, in the back squat test on Sunday, you know, your spine must remain neutral during the entire test. So no butt winking, no extension, uh, hyperextension of the neck or anything else with that. So you must, so regardless if you have long femur, short femurs, long torso, short torso, you must be able to do that. And we found it through, even before Pablo and I put together the SFL back in 2012 and 13, that for set for a long time, people can squat and everyone of different body types can achieve the same type of technique if they work hard at it. So. Right. Based on, again, if you have short femurs, long femurs, or short humerus, long humerus. And by the way, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, so, I mean, you guys built this program almost a decade ago now, you know, from there. Um, now you're making me sound old, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't feel old till you just said that. Thanks yeah. a lot. <laughs> Happy birthday again. Yeah, so, okay, dang. <laughs> How has, um, has it changed that much since the first time that you started it from how it's taught now, the SFL? The, the seven lifts that we teach are the same. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you that the first what, five years of teaching it, that my original um, manual that I traveled to every cert with, I used to write notes in red ink. Uh, so I could differentiate from the typing. And so I had more red ink around the edges than it actually was typed in black ink on the page. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then we created the second edition and I put all those ready things into that aspect. 
Um, the seven lifts are still the same. So the seven lifts have changed a little bit as far as some of the different things. Cause I found that as I was teaching, you know, say three or four search in a row, and all of a sudden, well, this person did this, this person did this. So I kind of looked into this research and like, okay, this is the best way to do this. Um, we've changed the order of the lifts. The order of lifts have been the same for a number of years because we found that the order of the lifting, as far as we teach Zurcher squat, then we mm -hmm. go to front squat, then we go to military press. That order seems to work more, is more uh, synergistically optimal uh, for students mm -hmm. to learn with that. Um, it's interesting though, at the very first cert in, in uh, Italy, Fabio hosted us uh, there. Um, <laughs> we used to have a five rep bench test and a one rep bench test. And mm -hmm. we got rid of the five rep bench test. That was, that was gone. And I think if I remember right, and maybe this is due to my advanced age today, um, I think we used to have a front squat test too. And we got rid of that. Um, so it was just one of those things where we, we, that after that first cert, Pablo and I kind of put our brains together and we kind of tweaked it and, and then we started tweaking it and retweaking it. Re mm -hmm. So when we got to the second SFL was in Tucson, Arizona in July of 2013, that cert was different than the cert before. The right. information that was taught was the same, but so how we, how we did it. And so we started tweaking it and by 2015, it was pretty much, um, pretty much put together where it should be. Right. I mean, that's why I love this program so much with Strong First is because it's always constantly evolving from there. So the front squat test, that was interesting because that was one of the things I found was more eye-opening than anything on the squat. You probably did the back squat test. We did the back squat test, but actually setting up for the front squat, yeah. really like getting you know it in and, building, and then working on the Zercher squat so much, it made when we got to the back squat way easier of just getting those principles down. So that was one of those things that was really on point because I was one of those that the Zercher squat was always like a love hate relationship that I had <laughs> where it just killed my arms like always, but really? yeah, just the way, like for some reason, if you are, if you get it in the this right spot, it always hit this nerve on my hand and it would kind of like get that little tingle for a while. Yeah. It was very yes. strange. Finally fixed that out. And that is one of the best lifts that I mm -hmm. found for working with people. Oh, yeah. You can really load that up. You can really load it up without maybe that, if you don't have the thoracic mobility, it seems of getting into the back squat. Well, I like teaching a Zercher squat because it's a back squat from the ribs down. Right. You know, from the ribs up, it's not obviously. So from the ribs up, we need to go to the, the teach you how the back squat, the thoracic mobility, high bar, low bar, and do all that. Move your hands in, move your hands out, get that mobility aspect. But again, that's why if I teach someone in my gym how to do barbell stuff, we start with the Zercher squat. Of course, their first comment is, that's going to hurt my elbows. And I said, I don't, as a matter of fact, I, you know, I'll use a short sleeve shirt here and I won't use anything on my elbows when I do Zercher squat. Right. Um, people will use elbow sleeves, people will use sweatshirts, which are recommended if you need to do something, use it. Just don't use a towel or something like that. Right. It can slip out. Um, but I'm so used to it. But when you come up to the bar with your arms perfectly straight and then you curl your arm around the bar, you, you seat that bar in your elbow much, much better. Whereas if you come to a bent arm and then you go up to the bar, you can actually pinch your skin. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to pinch your skin when you have 135 on the bar. But when you have 225, 315, 405 yeah. on the bar, yeah, now you're yeah. going to have a blood blister going on. So, yeah, not a pretty sight. Yeah. When you teach in the SFL now with people, is there, it seems like one common thing that most people struggle with more than other things? I would say it's probably the military press. Mm -hmm. You know, we are so used to, if you come from a kettlebell world to a barbell world, 
when you do that, you know, the, each, if you don't have double bells in your hands, one bell in each hand, um, it's different because you're not constrained by a seven foot piece of steel. Right. I came from a barbell world to a kettlebell world. So I came from, you know, handling a barbell uh, probably a million times in 20 years, touching it, whether it be deadlift, back squat, but, you know, bench press, whatever else type movements. So when I went to the kettlebell world, it was different because this arm could do something than this arm when I was pressing. Mm-hmm. You did that with a barbell, and now you just shifted the whole torque right. of the barbell. So the military press, in, in, in probably in my mind, tends to be the more difficult. And I seem, to, I seem to think that's more difficult, almost more cognitively than it is physically. So, for example, in 2015, I was in England teaching an SFL with Claire Booth and great cert. And there was a woman, I was in it kind of like behind a couple of racks. And as she was pressing up the bar, she started shaking her head this way. And the bar was maybe just above her eyebrows. And she was shaking her head like this. And I said, all right, put the bars down. We need to have a talk. And what she was doing was she was psychologically psyching herself out while she was actually lifting. Most people do it before they lift. Right. But she was doing it during the lift. So I actually wrote an article for Strong First, and I created this condition called uh, cervicalis circumducer, whatever it was. I just created it. And basically, she was rotating her head side to side. So I said, if you're going to do something, do this. Right. This positive than doing this. Right. I don't care if you're a power lifter, if you're a grandmother, I don't care who you are. You know, you do your head that way. It's not going to be positive that. Yeah. So, but <laughs> yes, not no. Yeah. <laughs> I always bring up my good friend Yoda where he said, do or do not, there is no try. Right. So when you walk up to a barbell or a kettlebell or say a bodyweight exercise for that matter, Karen, I hope you're listening, um, that when you do that, you, you need to make sure you can do it. Now, you may not be able to do it once the lift is done. But you gave everything possible to be able to get that done. But if you walk up to a bar with a, huh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this or do a, do a bodyweight pull-up or whatever else, and you walk up to it thinking like that, just back off. Yeah. Just stay, get away from it. Because you're because the success of you being able to do that, unless you're doing a 50% 1RM uh, weight, is almost next to nothing. Success of that is next to nothing because you just don't have a psychology. So the brain is just as much about the body as the body is about the brain. Yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've seen that with many people going into something like a beast tamer challenge, where it's like thinking that the adrenaline of the energy behind it is just going to magically just navigate you through just finishing up in your press or your, right. pole, you know, and I just talked with Sven the other day who oh. just completed the Denny Stones challenge. Right. And he said, it was interesting because he talked about he had the he had the strength he felt like in about February, like he lifted the amount of weight that the stones were, right. but he solidified that over and over to get 15% above that. So he knew when he stepped up to that stones, there was whatever happened. And he said, there was like a weird black mat you had to stand on. Like a lot of things are going to pop up right. during the time that you might not be aware of, but he knew like, I have the strength to do this so I can navigate whichever direction it goes. Well, it's interesting with Sven because I haven't talked to him since he did the Denny Stones, but I congratulate him. But when you watch that video, he actually tried it one rep first. And mm-hmm. when he picked it up, the front stone moved to his left a tiny bit. Yep. And then he reset his hands and pulled it straight up. So it's almost like, I don't know if the stones were too wide for him or it put him in a better position mm-hmm. or his foot was maybe slipping on the black mat. I don't think I saw his foot slipping. But again, he's, he wanted that so much 
that he then stood up and then he stood there for five seconds. Yeah. Almost, almost like being a, a, a smart ass. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, yes, I did. I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. I got it. You know, just making sure it's there. Yeah. Couldn't do it beneath the stone. So I was really proud of him for doing it. He did a great job. Yeah. It was interesting. He talked because there was maybe five or six other people that were at that time of doing it. And none of them like trained with that. It almost looked like a, like a mat you would see like in a bar, like behind, like where they put the rubber mats down. So you don't slip on the, on the liquor that's getting, you know, dropped down there. So it almost, he said that was the weirdest thing. And nobody actually accomplished the first time of going, of going up. Yeah. And then everybody kind of went in and they, um, you know, we talked about how Jason Marshall just kind of gave them just like, just drop your hips down and then you got it, you know, from there. But I think it's kind of talk about that over preparing, knowing you have the strength of going in, not assuming that, you know, the adrenaline's just going to fire in, step up to the bar, just like you said, knowing you're going to give everything you have to this lift. Well, and I've talked to Sven and I said, hey, I, I would like to possibly do the Denny Stones. I'm not one sure when I could do it, but the, if I were to do it, what I would try to do is get a copy of those mats mm. and for my gym so I could actually practice on top of them. Cause I'm most kind of people I like to practice, 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 and then, you know, show it on the thing. So that's why, for example, when I played football, you know, I trained barbells and kettlebells and I trained my, my agility outside and everything with that. When I did powerlifting, same thing too. I always made sure I had, as far as the equipment that was on the powerlifting program with the, with the uh, program director was actually going to be having there at the cert uh, or sorry, at the, at the competition there. Um, so I want to make sure with that. So again, that's where if you have the ability to be able to do that or, or somehow make it somewhat similar to that, um, I'll probably maybe call, I don't know who to get a hold of over there, but maybe they say, Hey, where do you get those mats from? I want to practice on top of those mats. Yeah. Yeah. Just try and mimic it as much as possible. It was weird because I remember when Jason did it, I saw his and they weren't, and those mats weren't there. So oh. he talked, they might be because they're trying to, you know, keep the stones, you know, together. So people aren't dropping them onto the hard floor and maybe eventually one day they might just crack or something like that. Yeah. Who knows? It's like, but he's like, whatever. It's like, that's what we had to do. And then you just go, on. but kind of going back to your point on, on the military press, which is interesting. Like the girl looking to the, to the side, I almost thought like, if you were just so natural of like doing like a one-arm press, sometimes you train to look at the bell as you're going up. Oh no, she was not doing it. She was yeah. working her head side to side saying, I'm not getting this. That's um, so funny. Yeah. So I wrote an article about it for Strong First. So if anyone wants to read it, they can go look it up. But um, again, it's just one of those things that said when you do in, in, the, in the military press is very similar to the deadlift, where in this regard, that the very first rep of the military press is almost as much mental as it is physical, because there's no eccentric followed by a concentric. It's all concentric. It's all one rep up. Now it's top then you can go up and down. So like the bench press, you start at arm's length, you bring it down, you press it up. So you go eccentric followed by concentric. Right. Whereas the military press does not have that, whether it be kettlebell or barbell, it's always a concentric lift the first time. That's the point. So that's why when you watch someone do a, say a heavy uh, 3RM in the kettlebell military press, the first rep is usually the most difficult of the three reps. Usually, not always. Mm -hmm. So once they press up the first one, then they get the second one and they got a rhythm going on with that. Even if they pause at their chest for a brief moment, they still got a rhythm going on. But it's the first press because you, you're you're launching it off your chest, off your collarbone to be able to get it up there. Hmm. So very similar to this. That's why I have my little mental ass talk when I teach the military press because 
you got to go into it with knowing that you can do it. Otherwise, back off on the bar, get your mind right, then get back into it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's tough. And the architecture of some people, because we had a couple of guys who were some very long limb dudes that mm-hmm. were having to press 135 over their head and, you know, go up to the, the penthouse floor. And it's like, well, it's uh, strength sometimes for the tall man is, is not the is not the easiest thing in the world. We had a guy at my SFG one uh, in, in Tampa last September, a year ago. Um, this kid was six foot eight. And he, he had his snatch test. He had to do the 28 kilo because he was over uh, 220 pounds. Mm-hmm. And watching him snatch, I'm like, and, I'm yeah. six one, and I'm like looking up at the top of his snatch. I'm like, dang. You know, we had a guy in uh, Prague, uh, shout out to Pavel Masek, that we, in his gym, he has his, the, the uh, ceiling. It was actually one of those things where it kind of came down and like a, maybe about that. Why come up? It was designed with straight, uh, steel or whatever. So when he did the military press, this guy was 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he actually we had to move the whole rack over about six, seven inches so that the top of the plate would not hit that middle thing. So then the yeah. barbell would be in that aspect. Then we moved it back to where everyone else. Yeah. So, but this guy, he got it, but it was just one of those things to move it over and make accommodations because he was so, like you said, long-limbed mm-hmm. that he had to do that to be able to press the bar up. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's funny. It's, I was thinking, like, because as I was going through the whole SFL, I mean, I've been in the kettlebell world for 12 years now. I think did my first RKC in 2009 um, in okay. there. But I'm thinking, I was like, if I was going to have somebody brand new at the beginning stages now, I think going through the SFL first, I think the principles behind that seem like they just carried over into helping everything else from the kettlebell. I'm sure you can kind of go on a bunch of, you can do like a mix and match. You can do body weight first and stuff too. But in my mind, I was like, I think SFL could be, should be the first one that people go to if they're just getting through into this world. Well, from, in my mind, like I said, I was in a barbell world for 20 years. So mm-hmm. I would t- tend to hundred percent agree with you with that. Um, when Pablo and I created the SFL, one of the things we created was that you, a prerequisite to come to the SFL. So you either had to be an SFG level one uh, before, or you had to go to the kettlebell course before you could come to the SFL. Mm. And then in 2017, I said, let's get rid of that because people with the, uh, with the advance of YouTube and, and people's online stuff, people can get that. So I said, you need to know four things before you come to the, to the barbell, sir. And it's just still today, you know how to do a goblet squat, uh, a kettlebell swing, okay, and kettlebell deadlift, obviously, an arm bar, okay? So those are the things you need to be able to learn before you come to uh, the, the barbells. Because if you know how to do those things, you understand some principles. So for example, at the top of a kettlebell swing, you have a vertical plank. Well, right. you have a vertical plank in the zercher squat, in the deadlift, uh, the military press, you have, you know, front squat, vertical plank at the top of those lifts. Um, the arm bar teaches thoracic mobility. Obviously, you found with the barbell, you need thoracic mobility both in the front squat and the back squat, even bench press, military press, all those different things with that. Um, the goblet squat teaches you as far as the, the six standards of the goblet squat. So I moved that to the front of the SFL manual. We got to make sure we go through all those six standards in the beginning. So you know how, what we, what your ex, our expectations of you as a student are to be able to get through uh, the different squat motion. Those six standards generally apply almost to every lift. So for example, in the bench press, we say your knees must track your toes. 
And someone's like, I'm not using my knees in the bench press. Oh, yes, you are. You are. <laughs> if your feet are planted properly, yes, you are. And and I've seen people whose, uh, whose knees are caving in during the bench press. So you remember the old linkage versus leakage thing yeah. we teach during the get up in the arm bar. Um, we want to make sure you're linked up, not leaked up. So make sure you move your feet so your, your toes and your knees are tracking because you're driving your legs as you're pushing up the bar off your chest. Yeah. It's interesting because that was one of the biggest challenges that I found, like like a military press, like I found that drive to the floor, get your leg drive in there. But translating that over into a horizontal movement was not computing right away. So I remember like Annalisa came over and she's like pushing my legs in so I could drive down and out. And it was like a hysterical moment. She's like, you feel that? I was like, yeah, I freaking feel it. But then all of a sudden you get that leg drive down and it's just that instant strength. That right. popped up. But so your knees were probably coming in, right? It just you I wasn't getting even that drive with the legs. Um right. like actually kind of getting that coil position up of right. getting that thoracic work and then with the drive. And it is, I think like like anything, like I didn't touch really a barbell for up until five months before I went to the SFL, which seems okay. like a long time, but it's really not that long of building these new paths right. up and stuff like that. So it takes forever, but the principles of it, you know, was so powerful in, in that. And well, that's what Pablo and I, we talked about. We want to keep the principles. So we took the kettlebell aspect and we took the principles and we applied it to the barbell. Then they applied it to the body weight so that whether you're doing body weight, kettlebell or barbell, you're learning the principles through all of them. Now, granted, mm -hmm. obviously the one arm, one leg pushup is different than a bench press. You know, I will tell Karen, I think it's better than the one arm, but she will argue with me. So it'll be a playful argument. Um, so. But anyways, the point is, is that when you do that, it's, it's a different exercise, but still the principles apply. You know, you, so for example, there's a quote in the, the manual from Andy Bolton uh, that the best lifters know how to generate tension the best. Hmm. I was actually teaching this last night. I have a kettlebell class on Monday nights after I'm done with patients. And so I tell them, I said, you need to generate tension the best. Get your lats, your abs, your grip, uh, your glutes, get them on fire 100% because the more you generate tension, the one safer you'll be able to be when you're lifting, okay, because you're developing that intra-abdominal pressure aspect, protecting the spine. But secondly, you'll be stronger because you can translate those. So remember the um, irradiation? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if I make this fist, already my forearms tense, which that means my shoulders getting tense, so everything's ready to rock and roll. If my hands relaxed, then not going to have that irradiation aspect. So same thing too with the, you know, glutes, lats, ab, grip, glag, as you probably learned at the SFL. Yep. Uh, but we do that with that because you would need to have all those tension generators on fire hundred percent to be able to lift. And I don't care if you're doing barbell or kettlebell or playing football or right. whatever you're doing, you need to be, have those generators ready to rock and roll. Yeah. And it is, I think I've, I was very fortunate. I felt like I had, like you saw a lot of the principles from kettlebell work to body weight that transferred over. But right. at the same time, like I would tell anybody that's going for one of these things, spend as much time in that modality as possible because it will carry over, but you still need time underneath the bar. Like that was like you said, like, I'm like, I know what I need to do, but you still need to get those reps in. So I think in one of your articles and you mentioned it here, get a thousand reps in on that new bar path and just keep building it up. Well, and, it's, and so many people want to advance or move themselves to the specialized variety exercises that are in the manual. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, don't. Spend a year, maybe two years, just working on the basics. 
because your body will be much better and healthier. Then eventually, then maybe work on some pause deadlifts, maybe work on some touch and goes, maybe work on some rack deads or things like that. So when Sven was training for the Denny Stones, um, he actually used as far as heavy rack deads to train for it. Mm -hmm. Because uh, unlike unlike a barbell where the barbell is, I don't know how many inches off the ground, but not very far, the Denny Stone's handle is further off the ground. So you right. don't need to train that necessarily that range of motion. You can train the, the, the rack dead. So he got his rack heads up to, I think, 300 kilos or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, so he's able to do that. But again, I would not have recommended Zen get into the rack deads until he had his deadlift form down. But he's been doing the, you know, you know SFL right. stuff years even before that. So he was ready to rock and roll with that. But yeah. again, don't advance yourself, you know, have spend some time with the basics. Um, one, one quote I say during the SFL is that the difference between a average lifter and a, an elite lifter or a, athletes is that the elite athlete can do the basics that much better. Right. And that goes back to our earlier conversation about as far as you know, when you get someone so zoned in to doing a skill, that's why the cognitive aspects of asking the math stuff applies because mm -hmm. it continually enhances that aspect. Um, so. Yeah. And it seems like it's, it seems sexy and exciting to go to those specialized things really quickly. Cause it's like, Oh, cool. Yeah. I want to go to the pause deadlift or I want to start throwing trigonometry out when I'm doing stick hand, like, <laughs> no, get to your, get to your level first of, of building those patterns up. And I think that was what Sven said. Cause he was like, he, I think you need like a 300 kilo pole just to like just to sign up to go do it. Like they'll right. say, like, you need to, have, you know, do that. But then he got the rings to specialize more and that completely changed it because he started to rip his hand because the ring of holding the ring is much different than holding a bar. It's like, it's well, just digging into that acute spot. And it's got a sharper curve yeah. and a kettlebell handle. So you can have, you know, one at your pinky and your index finger on the edge of the curve and your other ones are barely touching as far as the ring there. So yeah, you got to spend some definitely some, so you know, that sport specificity in law. So you actually become very good at your sport when you do something very specific. And that's why that, that Pavel talked before about the in-between strength. And that's mm -hmm. what I train for football because I don't want to get stuck over here. I want to train this and this so that in the middle, I'd be stronger. But if I just train this, the middle strength would be difficult to be able to, to call upon when I needed it because the, over here, I wasn't strong. Right. Yeah. So that's where sports specificity comes into play that if all I do is low bar back squat, I'm going to be great at low bar back squat, but my front squat's going to suck. Right. Yeah. That's such a, it's such a good point. It's such a good message, especially if for athletic training is, you know, there was this big debate for a while of GPP versus SPP. And it's like, yes, you need the foundational work, but it almost kind of devalued the sports specific stuff and getting into the auxiliary stuff that can help you. It's like, it's all important to do both, like build the foundation, but then that in-between strength, I like the, you know, I like that phrase that you use there of doing those things as well, because that is going to also propel you the best way into your sport. So, so for example, when I was powerlifting, my heavy squat day was on Tuesday. So I did heavy low bar back squats. Mm -hmm. But then on Saturdays, before I did deadlifts, I did medium front squats. So I still kept the front squat motion going, but I did them in a medium aspect. So maybe like, what, 70% one RM, mm -hmm. something like that, um, for sets of five. And I warm up, you know, help my be a warm up before I do the deadlift for two reasons. One, in a powerlifting meet, obviously I'm squatting before I'm deadlifting. Uh, but two, also it helps me warm up for the deadlift better because I'm actually pushing myself, but I'm not pushing myself where my RP, RPE is like 9.5. Right. 
RP is like maybe a five, right? Maybe, maybe not even a six or that kind of thing. So, but I'm gets me ready and warmed up for the deadlift. Mm -hmm. Love so, it. yeah, yeah, great. Um, Doc, it's always a blast talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been great. Are you teaching any certifications that are coming up soon? I got a SFG level one in Tampa in September. Oh, right. Okay. SFL in uh, Philadelphia in October, and then uh, SFL in San Diego in December, then San Diego again for SFG one in, in January. Awesome. Yeah. And hopefully you'll be in my area at some point soon. Yes. yes. I'll let you know when I'm back up there again. So I'll have you definitely come on over. Maybe if you want to come in and assist or whatever and do it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be honored to. So no, cool. thanks so much. I appreciate you taking the time again. Happy 29th birthday on this day. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. My, my son calls it my 26th anniversary of my 29th birthday. It's a good man right there. It's a good son. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, doc. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right, buddy. Thank Take you, care. everybody. Talk to you soon. Peace. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you found some great value here. And if you like this episode, please drop a comment and leave us a five-star rating and review. It does more to build the show than you can imagine. And do not forget to check out and join the Strength Connection Facebook group. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations, as well as training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in life. It's, this group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength, and it's the perfect space to explore new ideas and to share your journey. And you'll also get exclusive access to the Strength Connection Mastery Seminars. It's a deep dive into the physical, mental, and spiritual training that you can begin using immediately. So do not wait. Go now. Seriously, go. I right, much love to you. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you on the next one.